this morning we're in Matthew chapter 13, and the last couple of parables here, Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer as we turn to the Word. Father in heaven, we do pray that even as we sung, that you would make it well with our soul this day. We pray that as the scripture is read and as it is preached, that you would take the eternal truths that are written before us and that you would write them upon our hearts. We might know the truth of your word, that we might know you are living God. And that you might even give the gift of faith where it is not present this morning. And that you would encourage the gift of faith where it already resides. Grant us your grace, we pray, in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 52. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven it's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Now the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we come here to the end of the parables in Matthew chapter 13 this week, you'll think back over all of these weeks that we've been going through these series of parables, and you think there was the parable of the sower, and there was the parable of the weeds, and there was the parable of the mustard seed, and there was the parable of the leaven, and the parable of the hidden treasure, treasure and the parable of the great pearl of value. And now he gives us two final parables, the parable of the treasure, and then the parable of, I mean, the parable of the net, and then the parable of this new and old treasures. And these two parables in this entire section in Matthew chapter 13, where the Lord Jesus Christ is giving us parables to tell us about Him as the King and about this kingdom that has come. We're going to look at these two this morning. First, the parable of the net. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that has been thrown into the sea, and as it is thrown into the sea, it gathers up the fish of every kind uh, as it is pulled into the shore. And this is a picture that all the people listening to Jesus at this time would have 
been able to readily think of in their mind. This is something that they would have regularly seen. This net that Jesus speaks about is what we would today call a drag net. It was a huge net. It would have been several hundred feet long, maybe as high as 20 feet high. And fishermen would have taken this huge net out in a couple of boats and they would have dropped this net out into the sea a few hundred yards off of the shore. And then they would have come back into the shore. That net would have had, at the bottom of one of the ends of the net, it would have had weights. So that that net, the bottom of the net, would have fallen down to the seabed. The other edge of the net would have had cork, or it would have had wood across the other edge of the net, so that that part of the net would kind of hover on the surface and it would float. And then the fishermen on the sea, as that net was out there, they would take these huge ropes and they would stand on the seashore and it would take a bunch of these fishermen and they would pull on these ropes and as they pulled on the ropes, the net would come together and they would pull it into shore. And as they pulled that net into the shore, all the fish that were before that net would be gathered up into that net and as they pulled the net onto the shore, so all the fish that they had gathered would come onto the beach and as Jesus says here, they would then sort through the fish that they had pulled onto the beach. The good fish they would keep and they would put in containers, and those containers they would go off to the market with. And the bad fish they would throw away. So what's the connection with the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus says in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. And throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The second parable he tells is of a scribe who has been trained in the kingdom and for the kingdom of heaven. And that man, he says, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure both new things and old things. It's a simple, it's a short parable. And the two parables, as you put them back to back, you think they they don't really seem to go together. But they do. And it's purposeful. So I want to look at that this morning. Three points this morning from these two parables. First, a certainty. Second, a caution to consider. And third, a charge. So first, a certainty. Jesus is making it clear that there is a certainty that judgment will come. Judgment to come is a certainty. It is there will be an end to this age. As you and I know all things right now, this will come to a close. It won't always be like this. Everything will come to an end. And it won't be because there was a nuclear war and it destroyed all the people on the face of the earth. It won't be because an asteroid hits the earth and destroys everything that's living. Those things may happen. And if they do happen, I'm going to find out where Matt Damon's at and hide with him. Because as one of you pointed out to me this week, he always seems to be rescued in whatever movies he's in. And Hollywood has spent hundreds of millions of dollars rescuing Matt Damon. And so he seems to always be safe. Those things may occur, but 
the end of life as we know it, it will not come to an end by those things. It will come to an end as Jesus returns. And as He closes this age and He consummates the kingdom. And when that occurs, it will not be a benign event. Judgment will come. There will be a separation, He says, of the righteous from the evil. In the parable that the net is cast out there, it has gone out, it's just a matter of time before the the cords are snapped, and the net is pulled together and comes to a close, and then the sorting begins. You think about a fish, a fish can be swimming along, it can be swimming in its fishy little world and enjoying all of its fishy little things, and then in a moment, a, a net is snapped and Everything that it was distracted by in its fishy little world, it it ends. Like we've seen in the other parables, the kingdom of Christ, it doesn't always appear as if it is present. Like it or not, it's often below the surface. It seems at best very distant. Sometimes it just seems non-existent as we see evil in this world seem to go forward and As we suffer through all the tribulations and sorrows and struggles of this life. But like we've seen in multiple parables here in Matthew 13, that the kingdom of Christ is here. And yet it's not here yet. It's like a net that has been spread. The fisherman is at work, but the cord hasn't been snapped yet, but it will be. And when that occurs, all shall be exposed before the full light of God. God allows unbelief and He allows wickedness and He allows evil in this world, but only for the time being. It will end. Judgment comes. That's certain. There will be a day, like we just sung, when a trumpet sounds. I love when uh, Shane or sometimes John, this morning Elijah up here playing their trumpets on Sunday mornings. We often do that on Easter. Seems like John has it on Easter. That's fitting. The trumpet is played when a king enters in. And on that last day, the the trumpets of heaven shall sound as the King descends from heaven upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels. And He brings His kingdom into full consummation. And when He comes, He comes in judgment. It's certain. In His first coming, He came wrapped as a baby in swaddling clothes. In His second, He he will come as the warrior king in judgment upon the earth. It's certain. Jesus in this text, He doesn't go into detail about that. He will do that a little later in Matthew as we get to the close of the Gospel of Matthew. But here what He is doing is he's focused upon the separation that happens when he comes in judgment. What we would call that great white throne of judgment. 
When people will be forever separated one from another, the righteous put on his right and the wicked put on his left, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and separated for all of eternity. He proclaims it. The angels, as he mentions here, are the ones who do the separating because they're the ministers of Christ's judgment once he has proclaimed it and it's certain that judgment will come. Second, there is a caution Jesus would have us consider in our text. When the fisherman separates the fish, he knows the good from the bad. When Jesus returns in final judgment, the evil shall be separated from the righteous. And when he says the good and he says the righteous, he's not referring to someone achieving some kind of moral status or some certain level of morality. We can't make ourselves by effort or diligence something good or something righteous. Rather, he's speaking about those who are righteous by virtue of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to them. What makes for a righteous person a person that is clothed with the righteousness of Christ? And it is only those who are united to Christ. And united to Christ and therefore clothed by the righteousness of Christ who are righteous. There is no salvation apart from salvation in Christ. And that righteousness only comes by grace through faith. In this Christ. Jesus says in John 3.18, after that most famous of verses in John 3.16, He says this, Whoever believes in Him, meaning Himself, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And for those who have not believed, Jesus says here that they are thrown into the fiery furnace. And in that place, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Richard Baxter once commenting upon this text said this, he said, these plain words more need belief and consideration than exposition. That's true. It's, It's a very clear text. It doesn't need a lot of explaining, does it? It just needs belief. Even as that judgment to come is a certainty, so Jesus would caution that the promise of the pains of hell are an equal certainty, and that must be a consideration for all of us. There's been debate over the centuries about whether hell should be preached, their pastors should do that when they're in the pulpit, like I am this morning with a text like this. The argument is, why not just offer the hope of salvation to people? Uh, it's a heavy thing to, to talk about hell, to preach about hell. I, uh, I tremble in my heart as I think about it. And it gives me no particular delight. I think it's necessary. Because it's a lack of 
preaching hell, I think, over these last couple of generations that has led to so much misunderstanding about hell. But maybe more importantly, the best preacher the world has ever seen preached often about hell. In fact, preached probably more about hell than anyone has preached before. And that is Jesus. He found it necessary to preach about hell, and he even found it beneficial. He, you'll notice in this text, he makes no commentary upon heaven in this text. That, that may seem strange, but it's not strange for Jesus when he's preaching. He often preaches about hell. In fact, as has often been said, he preaches more about hell in the Scriptures and says more about hell than anyone else does in the Scriptures. Why? And why here? Because those, there were those who were listening to Christ and listening to Christ preach about the kingdom and telling these parables about the kingdom and about this King, Christ Himself, who was reigning and thought very little of this King. And thought very little of this kingdom. And wanted nothing to do with it. He's given parable after parable in this part of the Gospel, highlighting its value and highlighting its worth. And he said, look, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure that's found in a field that you want to sell everything for. It's like a, a pearl of the most costly value that you should be willing to give up everything for. And yet there are those that hear that and say, I, I don't find it that valuable. I don't want... Your Christ. I don't want this kingdom and I don't want your God. Just stop preaching that to me. Just leave me be. Can't your God just leave me alone? And Jesus is telling us as He is telling His hearers that you just can't dismiss the kingdom of Christ. You can't just dismiss it and say, I want nothing to do with it. Because every single individual who has ever been made and created to dwell upon this earth is impacted by it. All stand to be redeemed by the King of the Kingdom or will be condemned by the King of the Kingdom. And that is a caution worth considering. A number of years ago, I was listening to a book or reading a book about a, a boy that was with his family on the way across the Pacific in a boat and the boat sank and this boy was cast into the sea by himself and he was on a little raft all by himself out in the middle of the, the Pacific Ocean. And he was trapped on the Pacific Ocean in this little raft for 90 days, for I'm sorry, for nine months. And he lived upon water, rainwater that he would catch in this vessel and fish that he could catch. And he talked about how he was constantly in a state of hunger and constantly in a state of thirst. 
And the wind and the rain and the salt water did its number upon his clothes, and eventually, after weeks, his clothes were in shatters, and eventually he was naked. And so he was on this raft, naked, day in and day out, hungry and thirsty. He said he would pray during the day when it was hot and the sun was beating down that it would rain just so he could have something to drink. And then when it would rain, he would pray fervently that the sun would come out because he was so shaken by cold and despair. And then one day, after nine months of being on this raft, he saw a ship on the horizon. He was overjoyed, as he says in the book. He said, quote, salvation was on the horizon and nothing looks so good as salvation. And so he grabbed this flare gun that he had been holding on to for all of these months upon this raft. And he grabbed the flare gun and he looked up and then when he saw that he didn't need to use it, he thought, because here was this huge oil tanker of a ship that was coming towards him. It was coming. It wasn't going off in the distance. It was now coming. And, and so he put down the flare gun and he began to dance with all his emaciated body could do in those next moments. And then he was shaken out of his dance and he looked up and he saw not only was the ship on the horizon, now this ship was beginning to bear down upon his little raft to crush it. And his distraction, what could have been his salvation, was now about to crush him. This huge oil tanker was not only coming his way, but was now about to crush him and his little boat, and all he had to do was have responded to it. Jesus is cautioning us and wants us to consider that the kingdom is here. It's broken in and it's steaming forward and it has salvation in its whole. And that is welcome news to those who respond, but it's dreadful news to those who are too busy. So He cautions us about the reality of hell. And in the caution, we see three considerations this morning that think combat airs that we often hear about hell today. Three considerations about hell from this text this morning. First, we must consider that hell is real. It is real. Even the densest of readers can't page throughout the New Testament without seeing it on page after page and seeing reference after reference to hell. It is undeniable. In fact, Jesus Himself gives us more descriptions of hell than He does of heaven. Why? So that we might know its certainty and run to Him in faith that we might not experience it. Those especially in our day who want to dismiss hell by highlighting the love of God. God is love. Amen. God is love. It is so true and Wonderfully, He is love. He doesn't just have love. He is love. He doesn't just 
display love. He defines love. And his love so far surpasses what we call love, the love that we have for one another, the love that we have for things in the world, or even the love that we have for him, that it almost seems silly to call them by the same word. St. Augustine would, or St. Aquinas would talk about that being an analogy, that our love is but just an analogy to the love that he has because it is so unlike his. But even as we say that, we cannot deny hell and embrace universalism as some have run to as a result. Why? Because God's love cannot deny God's justice. He's love, but he's also just. We often speak of the attributes of God as though they are things that are appended to him, as if they're somehow kind of parts of him that when added up, make up the whole. You know, if I make a cake, I may talk about the sugar and the flour and the, the butter, and, and that's what makes a cake. But God is not made up of parts. He doesn't have parts. He is, as theologians will say, He's simple. There's not complexity in God. He's one singular whole being. He, he's simple. And so he cannot be separated at any point from what he is or who he is. His love must uphold his justice and his justice must uphold his love. An unjust God would be an unloving God. We know this. We, we demand justice when someone has done something horrific against someone else. And we do that often because of the need for justice, but we also do so out of love for the person that has been violated. Hell is a certainty because His justice is a certainty. God cannot deny Himself. Hell is real because God is real. Hell is very real. Second, hell is awful. It is awful, conscious, soul, and body torment. A person in hell is not simply in a bad place. It is an awful place. Jesus says, quote, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's described throughout the Scriptures in other various ways. It is described as unquenchable fire, a furnace of fire, a lake of fire, an eternal fire. It's called the place of everlasting torment. It is called outer darkness where the light of God's countenance is gone. It's called blackness and darkness forever. It's called a prison. It's called a bottomless pit. How many of those ideas can be taken literally is up for debate, but the Scriptures are clear and are trying to paint a very clear picture. That hell is the most awful of possible realities. But here's the most awful thing about hell. It's not just a separation of the wicked from the righteous. It's a separation of the wicked from God Himself. That's the true awfulness of hell. That's why it's often referred to as darkness. But isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere? Yes, He cannot not be somewhere. 
In fact, we could say hell is hell because God is there. Likewise, heaven is heaven because God is there. But in hell, we're separated from His love. God is still love, but those in hell will not experience that love. We don't know what hell is like here because we are always, in some way, the recipients of the grace of God. Either know His saving grace, or you at least know His common grace. That is, this, this life could be much more miserable for all of us. We could suffer much more than we actually do. We can endure many more trials than we do. But we don't because of God's common grace to us. But in hell, not only is His saving grace not there, but His common grace is not there. God is there in all His wrath, and that is what makes hell, hell. Even as heaven is heaven, because God is there in all His love. That was truly awful. And Jesus, He doesn't mince words. And that's why I'm not mincing words. He, he wants us to truly consider this. But I don't want this to be lost on you as you think about this. Even as Jesus is saying this, even as He's proclaiming this to the crowds that are around Him, and he knows that he is going to exercise this justice upon some of them. Even as he says this, he knows what's a, what awaits him. And he knows that as he speaks about the miseries of hell, he knows the hell that awaits him upon the cross. And truly that is the hell of hells. The worst of all hells. knows what awaits him, and he's willing to warn, knowing what it will cost him to warn others. Third, hell is everlasting. Jesus is alluding to that as he speaks of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a tear that is shed, but weeping, he said. It is anguish that carries on. Those who want to say that Hell is but momentary. When one is judged, then they are immediately annihilated. But this may be more palatable to our senses, is not more palatable to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are clear. Hell is everlasting. All hope is taken away forever. There's no rest. There's no respite. There's no relief. God created us to be everlasting. Our souls exist forever and our resurrected bodies will exist forever either in hell or in heaven. And God's justice will be exemplified forever. The Scriptures could not be more clear in describing this and noting that it's everlasting. Matthew 3.11, the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. Matthew 18.8, Jesus calls the fires of hell the eternal fire. As we'll see in Matthew 25.41, Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. It's a place that we're told in Mark 9 where worm never dies. In Revelation 14, maybe the most frightful description in all the Bible 
of hell, we read, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's forever. Some will say, but doesn't the Bible speak of the destruction of the wicked? Yes, but but not in the sense of not existing. It's an eternal destruction. It's an ongoing destruction. When Paul writes of such in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he calls it the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. Forever. Kingdom judgment is a certainty. We're cautioned with the certainty of hell. It's to be considered by all of us. And then finally, much more encouragingly, Jesus gives us a charge. After he's said all of this, all of these parables, and after he has given this, this gut wrenching, explanation of of hell. He asks the disciples a question. He says, do you understand all that I've taught you? And the disciples are quick. They, They give a ready yes, we understand. But we know that they didn't understand everything because we go on in the Gospel of Matthew and they will often ask questions and Jesus will often have to explain things and Peter will even be rebuked by Jesus for not understanding that he must die and that he must be raised on the third day. They don't understand everything. But Jesus treats them gently. And what they've understood, they have understood and they are ready to act upon it. They're ready to live it. They're ready to proclaim it. Not to the full extent that they will in the weeks ahead or the months ahead or the years ahead. They'll understand it even more fully, but, but Jesus is gentle with His own. They say, we understand, and so He knows what degree of understanding they have, and so He just continues on. And so He gives them, and I believe us, a charge from that. He says, a man who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He says this man is a, a scribe in this parable. And the scribe was a student of the Scriptures. He was to understand how to interpret them. But it wasn't simply to, so he could pronounce judgments upon others or simply bask in the light of his own knowledge. No, he was given knowledge so he might share that knowledge with others. And that's why Jesus connects these two things together. The disciples, they listen to the teachings of the kingdom, and especially this last one, and they could have been content with their knowledge, they could have been content with their understanding and with the headiness that they now had of understanding who the king was and his kingdom, and that they were not like these wicked people that would be judged, and they could have gone off in a kind of complete tranquility and delight in their own knowledge. Jesus is not simply filling their brains so they they might walk away with knowledge and delight in their headiness. Rather, what they have been given, they have been given to give away. And what they've learned, they are to teach. And what they have come to know, they are to make known. The discipled 
or the trained, as he says here in the kingdom, are to bring out, Jesus says. That word has the idea of bringing out what is within and, and giving it out in a, in a liberal way, a generous way. He says, you understand these things, you do well. But now let me ask you a greater question, Jesus is in essence asking. What are you doing with that knowledge? What have you done with it? I think that's what he would ask us. T.A. Carson points out about this passage that it's not just the scribe, that the scribe has been instructed about the kingdom and therefore understands, but that he has become a disciple of the kingdom. And therefore, his allegiance has been transformed. It's a recognition of who Jesus is. It's a recognition that his kingdom has come. It's a recognition that his kingdom is coming and the full consummation shall arrive. And it is someone that has been filled with this knowledge, but not just filled with it, but gripped by it, transformed by it has placed their faith in Christ, and they now treasure those things in their heart. And Jesus says, now from that treasure, they pull forth and they share with others. They don't keep it to themselves. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. You can evangelize, you can disciple, you can train, you can teach, you can mentor. You say, but I don't, I don't understand enough. Well, neither did the disciples. But Jesus charges them. If you know Christ, you know enough to share Christ. My friends, the stakes are great. Judgment is coming. Hell is real. We want to see people saved under Christ and we all want to grow in Christ. I want to learn more about Christ so that I'm a better servant of Christ. And a better servant of His kingdom. Able to bring forth the new and the old, as Jesus says here. Those old ancient stories. Those old ancient prophecies of the Old Testament and then the new realities that the Gospel brings to bear. To be able to take all of these things that have been treasured up with inside me that have changed and transformed me and I want to grow in my knowledge of them not just for my sake, but for others. To think about being a church, I think, you know, we, we, we don't want to be the kind of Christians that are content in, in what we have understood or what we have arrived at or what we have turned away from. We, we want to grow in our knowledge together so that we can grow in our service together. That's what Jesus is aimed at here. We're seeking to continue as a church, growing in this and growing as a church that lives in light of the kingdom together. 
That's our aim. That's why we exist here in East Lansing and University Reformed Church. It's for the benefit of our own souls. But it's also for the benefit of all the souls that are out there. Because the kingdom is a real thing. The king is a real thing. Hell is a real thing. And what we have received, we want to bring forth and share. As we are talking about it here at URC, we're, we've established kind of these three things going forward. This is our, this is our vision. So we want to connect and equip and serve. We want to connect, equip, and serve. As kingdom servants. We want to connect people to Christ. And we want to see them connected to the local church. Why? Because it is through the local church that Christ chooses to do His kingdom work primarily. So we want to see people connected to Christ. And we want to see them brought through the doors here. Or in other Bible-believing churches, preaching churches here in the area. But as they are brought in the doors here, we want to see them connected here. As we've talked about, there are four primary connecting points here. You connect by coming on Sunday morning because this is what we gather to do is to worship more than anything else. You come back on Sunday evenings to gather for worship because this is what we do. We worship. You come back tonight for prayer together. The third is that you go to the About URC class so you can connect with people and get to know them. The fourth is that you get into a growth group so that you have a smaller group of people that you're ministering alongside and ministering to and being ministered by in the church. Those four ways to connect. And then secondly, we are seeking to equip you. As you are connected to the church, we're seeking to equip you. The primary place that you're equipped is here on Sunday morning. We're equipping you for the sake of doing the ministry. And when you come back on Sunday evenings, you're being equipped for the work of the ministry. And we have all kinds of equipped things that we're doing. This faith focus, as we started, its purpose is to equip you. We have the biblical and theological foundations classes. Their purpose is to equip you. We have the men's and women's ministry and the women's doctrine study and all kinds of planned classes that we're going to have this year, like how does a Christian think about atheism and uh, the history of Christianity in China and other classes to equip you. You might grow in knowledge. But all of that is aimed at that third piece, isn't it? It's not a dead end. We connect equipped to serve. As James say, faith without works is dead. Because we're not trying to make Christian quiz bowl teams. But disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's strength for ministry. As James says, show me your faith by your works. We exist to serve the kingdom. To bring from our storehouse the treasures we know and are growing to know better. 
So we want to see you serving. We want to see you serving in the church. And we want to see you serving in the community. So you volunteer to serve in the church and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you serve in ESL or you serve in Christian Explored or you serve in DIG or you serve in the Sunday school classes or you serve by leading a growth group or you serve on the security team or you serve on the worship team or you serve on the fit committee or you serve on... There are so many places to serve. And you exercise your gifts for the building up of the church unto the glory of Christ for the sake of the kingdom. We bring forth from our treasures in order to serve. And then we serve in our community. We are to be salt and light in this community because the kingdom is real. The king is real. Hell is real. And so we go out there and we impact the community that we dwell in. So that if Universal Reformed Church disappeared tomorrow, there would be all kinds of unbelievers out there saying, where did that church go? We miss it. We need its influence. Pull forth from our treasures to serve. For His glory, for one another's good, and for the good of the community that we serve in. The disciple has been made a master of these truths. Not as much as we want to be a master. We haven't grown in these things as much as we want to, and that's why we keep trying to build one another up. But with what we got, we serve. I would say this, though quickly, before I close. I realize some of you have been injured by the church of late. Ah, been there. Done that. So for some of you, this is a big enough church that you just... You want to squeeze in and you want to squeeze out. It's a safe place to hide for a little while. To recover. Just to sit under the Word of God preach. Just to be in the midst of worship. Just to hear singing. And you say, I, I don't have it within me to serve right now. That's fine. This is a good place to rest. You eventually have to start serving again. Because you're called to it. And this is part of you and I working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So you rest for a while. And then you find a church where you can get fully engaged. If that's somewhere else, great. Serve with your whole heart to the glory of Christ. If it's here, wonderful. Serve with your whole heart to the glory of Christ. Because the kingdom is real. And our king is real. Is the treasure of eternal consequence that we've been given. I hope you've received it today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful. Not an easy text. Oh. Not fun to talk about, to think about. 
Not fun to contemplate. And yet we are also thankful that our Lord and our Savior, your Son, did not mince words, but that He was clear. So that we might know. And in knowing, it might lead us to saving faith in your Son. And that knowing, it might motivate us to seek and to save the lost around us. We believe that Jesus reigns on high. We believe that He shall return again upon the clouds. We believe that His death upon the cross is sufficient for for sinners. We believe that if our faith is in Him, that all of our sins have been atoned for. We believe all of these things. We pray that you would help us to live in light of that belief for your glory and praise. We want to glory in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.